0: everyone. So from now uh, until Christmas Eve, each Sunday of Advent, we will attempt to answer the question, why do we need Christmas? Ask yourself, what do you think of when you think of Christmas? What do you think of? I grew up in Germany, and the first things that come to my mind is a snowy outdoor German market. The smell of grilled bratwurst, mit and warm Brotchen. The mulled, spice glühwein. It's the first thing that comes to my mind. In college, I associated Christmas with going home to be with my family. When I got married, we started some of our own Christmas traditions uh, because I've always worked for churches. Uh, My wife and I are usually pretty busy on Christmas Eve, so we tend to travel on Christmas Day to be with our families who who don't live close by. One year, we were trying to use up all the food, you know, in our refrigerator before we we took off for our trip, and we decided to put everything in melted cheese. And so now we have fondue every Christmas. And I'll never forget uh, Christmas morning last year. When uh, my daughter came running out of her room into our living room, and she was stunned when she saw her present. It was a clean, bright, brand-new potty. She loved it. What is this thing? We're still trying to get her to use that. (laughs) What do you think of when you think of Christmas, and, and why do we need it? Why do we need Christmas? And I, and I don't just mean the day off of work or the, day, the time off from school. Perhaps you grew up in a culture where Christmas wasn't celebrated. Perhaps you don't think that you need Christmas. Many of us have wonderful memories from Christmas, from traditions that we've had every year. And some of us, for some of us, the holiday can bring about some painful memories perhaps loneliness perhaps you remember that year when something went wrong and while christmas markets and time off from school and time spent with family these are good things ultimately christmas is about something far less sentimental and far more fundamental to our year to our lives year round and not just the season you see, this morning we celebrate with this one candle, our first candle, we celebrate hope, the hope that Christmas and only Christmas can bring. You know, hope is a word that sort of gets hijacked by our sentimental notions often and can be dismissed by our sarcasm. However, every, everyone has hopes. Hope is an anticipated outcome. If you didn't have hope, you would die. You wouldn't get up in the morning. There would be no reason to live. Hope is what drives you. And therefore, where your hope is, your heart is as well. Now, the passage that was just read from Isaiah is full of hope, but not the things that we often put our hopes in. To give you some context, Isaiah was writing from Jerusalem during the reign of King Ahaz. Under King Ahaz, Israel had made alliances with surrounding nations, to protect themselves from the threat of the Assyrian Empire. And the threat was real. Now, this would have been considered a politically logical move, but was directly disobeying God's command to put their hope in His protection and provision. You see, God's people turned to earthly institutions, namely government, for safety and hope. Not only did they turn to political alliances, but they also turned to earthly experiences to guide them and give them hope. In chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, it describes what's going on here. It says that the people of Israel were looking after mystics and they were looking after the the professionals of their day. They were actually looking at at the necromancers and all sorts of uh, sort of people who thought they had wisdom. They were looking after them to give them guidance. They were putting their hope in their words. You see, the people were hoping that man-made ideologies, the people of God were hoping that man-made ideologies would give them counsel. And Isaiah records that the reason that they did this is because the people were lost, distressed. They were famished and they became enraged. And this darkness and the gloom was the result of not hoping in God. They were putting their hope in man. They were not putting their hope in God. And this was a dark period for Israel. In fact, they increasingly became more angry and more upset. Now, you may be uh, tempted to demiss- dismiss this idea as simplistic. Uh, after all, we're sitting here in church, unless you are sort of coerced to be here. You probably at one level would say, yes, I put my hope in God. But before you dismiss the Israelites as foolish for not hoping in God, let us be reminded of our own deepest hopes, our deepest desires of our heart. We may not feel the threat of an invading country, but we often, as God's people, look for hope outside of God within our own society. And and, and our society looks for hope in all places, yet for God. You see, our culture tends to put their hope in government as well. We have all seen or maybe even personally experienced the prolific outpouring, especially on social media, the prolific outpouring of dread or joy following this last election, whatever side of the aisle you're on. You know, some people put their hope in the stock market, uh, even though we've seen in very recent years how that can fail us. That's still a temptation. The housing market. And it seems like we all put our hope in science and education and technology. You see, we hope science and social advancement will save us from threats to our security and possessions. In other words, we hope in ourselves to save ourselves from ourselves. And we're surrounded by messages. Beckoning our hearts to hope in what we can control and what we can measure, in shiny objects and personalities that promise us security and happiness. Have you seen that in our culture? Do you see that in your own life? You know, during this time of Christmas, we're often asked or told to put our hope in sentimentality. We are told to put our hope in humanity's ability to pull ourselves out of the darkness and evil. The New York Times actually had an uh, ad, I read this, um, I read this in a book. Somebody quoted a New York Times ad that attempted to define Christmas in our day and age. And this is what it defined Christmas as. The meaning of Christmas, and this is the New York Times, is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. That we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. The idea is that humanity can do it if we all just get together and try. And just like the Israelites place their hope in political alliances and mystic superstition, our society hopes in things like science, education, and mankind pulling together to help one another. One false hope for another. Well, what does the church hope for? Let me ask you this. What does our church hope for? Is it God or is it cultural compliance? Is it God or is it successful programs and growing numbers and safe sentimental sermons? What do you hope for? You know, the Bible continually warns us that when our ultimate hope and trust is in anything that is not God, that ultimate hope becomes our God. If you do that, if you, are ultimately, uh, if you put ultimate hope in something that is not God, you are walking around in darkness and will only be distressed more and more. You see, when earthly hopes are ultimate, they leave us famished like the people that Isaiah describes. But when Isaiah was writing this, he looked forward to something greater. There was a small group of Israelites, a remnant of Israelites, who followed Isaiah, who listened to him. And even though the gloom had set in around them, they looked forward to something. And that's why in chapter 9, God gives Isaiah a vision. And he begins off in the ESV in our pew Bibles, he begins off with, but... The NIV, another translation, I actually like it more for this passage. It says, nevertheless, the people were walking in darkness, but nevertheless, we see the same kind of transition in Paul's letters, like in Ephesians, when he says you were dead in sin, but God in his mercy did something. And that's what God is about to do something here. God is about to do the same thing. People were walking around in darkness, but God would Save them. He is going to do something in the least likely of places. Chapter 9, verse 1. If you have a Bible in front of you, go ahead and pull it out. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time, he made his glorious. He made. He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. He's going to do something in the least likely of places. This is what Isaiah says. In the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, known as Galilee. This is the land, mind you, where conquering nations, this is sort of a funnel, where the conquering nations would pass through on their way to fight and conquer Jerusalem the Assyrians would eventually pass through this land. The Babylonians after them, and then the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, they would all pass through this region on their way to conquer Jerusalem. But Isaiah says, from this region of Zebulun and Naphtali, known as Galilee, this is where a Messiah would come, and he would start his ministry, and on his way to the cross where he would conquer sin and death. Isaiah is so sure of this hope, he's so confident that he writes actually in the past tense, as if it had already happened. He writes, the people in walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Some, some versions may say shined. I prefer the word dawned there. A light has dawned. And there is a contrast, is there not? Between the intrinsic light in humanity, who, as our modern newspaper described, were able to pull together themselves a world of unity and peace. And the biblical light that is not intrinsic within us, but has dawned on us. You see the contrast. The true light, the hope of the nations, has come to us rather than from us. And what effect does this light have? Well, it breaks up darkness. Light gives direction. Light reveals what is real. Light, according to the Gospel of John, exposes sinful desires in mankind. For us who put our hope in false things, light shows us something true to hope for. And for those who want to know God and put their hope in Him, this light that Isaiah is looking forward to will bring incredible joy. Matthew, in his Gospel, chapter 4, verse 12, quotes this passage to describe the ministry of Jesus. And what is the result of the ministry of Jesus? We see in verse 2, inclusion and multiplication. The work of the Messiah, His coming kingdom, this Jesus, is not regulated through a certain group, an ethnic group or region. You see, his nation is multiplied, and there is incredible joy among those who are included in the harvest. You know, we just, we just celebrated Thanksgiving, uh, a time when our country remembers the early settlers of America who gave thanks for their bar- bountiful harvest of food. And that was good. I had a wonderful Thanksgiving dinner. But the harvest that Isaiah mentions here is far more important because it is a harvest of people from around the nations throughout the world who are receiving the hope of the light of God, Jesus Himself. Isaiah illustrates three tenets of this messianic hope, each beginning with the word for. You can look at your Bibles, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6. All start with the word for. For the yoke of His burden, it says. This language, for the yoke of His burden is to remind us, the original audience, and us as well, of the oppression that God's people had under Pharaoh. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, it says, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is the kind of ministry that this Messiah will have. He will break oppression. Well, what kind of oppression? Well, we know that the exodus of God's people out of Egypt, led by the mediator mediator, Moses, Is actually a spiritual picture of God's people being rescued from the burden of hopeless slavery to sin, led by our true mediator, Jesus. And Isaiah draws this picture, draws on this picture, to describe our hope as freedom from the oppression of sin. You see, true hope does not rest in our ability to rescue our hearts from sin much like the people of Israel could not be rescued from Egypt except by a mediator. True hope, messianic hope, is that this Savior will give us a new heart, new motivations. Motivations that will reflect God's. The second hope, for every boot, it says, every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What does that mean? Well, this phrase was first introduced in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, when the promised Messiah would end war. The end of war. Now, to the original audience for whom war was a constant, this must have been an incredible thought. When the Messiah comes, his people will not need to defend themselves anymore in battle, but will be known for loving who? Their enemies. As citizens of a spiritual rather than a geographical kingdom, God's people have no land to defend. We have no use for war. Oh sure, we are citizens of countries and we are to defend our country. We are to be obedient to our rulers. But as God's people, violence is not something that needs to mark our kingdom. Isaiah has described this hope as freedom from oppression of sin and freedom from the necessity of war. But how will this be accomplished? How will it happen? Who is this light that will make this happen? And this is the main subject, if you're in a literary mode. This is the main subject for the next three verses. It says, for unto us, and here's the big subject, a child is given. A child is given. Is the one who frees us from oppression to slavery, who ends war, a child? All hope for eternal redemption and peace comes through a human, divine little baby. And we hang all our hopes not on the intelligence of professionals. On academic proliferation, not on the might of a nuclear arsenal, not on the expression of the most creative artists, not on the techn- technological advancement of the Silicon Valley. In fact, the source of God's people's hope was a small, Middle Eastern, uneducated, illiterate, blue collar baby boy, the family of a refugee. His name is Jesus. And He is the dawn that has entered into the darkness. You know, there, there are many unfaithful kings who would come before this baby was born. And when Jesus was born, God's creation, the cattle and the shepherds and the foreign wise kings came and they bowed before this little baby boy. They treated him as the king of the world. It was a royal birth that happened to a completely insignificant family in the eyes of the world. What was special about Mary and Joseph? Nothing. But in the eyes of God, this family was faithful. They were humble. And they put their hope in God's promises. And then it says we are given a son. A son is given to us. We are given the Son of God. The King whose kingdom will rest upon His ability to keep it. That's what it says. The government shall rest upon His shoulders. It's on Him. And Jesus, who is the dawn, who has entered into our darkness, is keeping us free and safe for all of eternity. His government, His kingdom, is centered on him. Isaiah prophesied that his kingdom will have no end. That's what it says. No end. You see, no philosophy, no cultural movement, no dictator, invading army, or charismatic personality would be able to stop the increase of his kingdom. That's what Isaiah says. And many have tried, right? Do you know that this morning there were at least 35 million Chinese who met together this morning and worshiped God before we even got here. 35 million. And that's just how many they think they know. It could be double that. Around the world, this kingdom is happening. 35 million Chinese people in underground churches, non-registered churches in China. They met this morning. This kingdom knows no bounds And then it says he has titles, it says. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Look at what's happening here. Wonderful Counselor. People were finding their counsel in what? The mystics and the experts of the day, which kept them in darkness. This small child would have true wisdom and offer hope far beyond any man-made methodology. And this begs the question, I think, when you have a problem, who do you seek first? You know, I've noticed uh, in myself and in others that we have a tendency to look to friends, to families, to, to authors, uh, to news networks, to you know Ellen or Oprah or whatever, uh, many other things, to tell us what to do or how we should act. But God's people must look to him and his word first. In fact, that is a description of what God's people are. They will look to him and his word first. Why? Because he is a wonderful counselor. He's also a mighty God. You know, this child is not just a human. He is not just God's anointed king. He is God himself. And John Calvin, the reformer, puts it like this. And this is the one screen, one slide that we have. <laughs> Follow along. It says, John Calvin says of the mighty God, this title. He says, For if we find in Christ nothing but the flesh and nature of man, our worship will be foolish and vain, and our hope will rest on an uncertain and insecure foundation. But if he shows himself to be God and the mighty God, we may now rely on him with safety. With good reason does he, Isaiah, call him strong or mighty. Because our contest is with the devil, death, and sin. Enemies too powerful and strong by whom we would immediately vanquish if the strength of Christ had not rendered us invincible. Thus we learn from the title, this mighty God, that there is, a, there is in Christ abundance of protection for defending our salvation so that we desire nothing beyond Him. For He is God who is pleased to show Himself strong on our behalf everlasting father he is the everlasting father to an everlasting people Jesus preserves the existence of his church throughout all of time and as Calvin points out bestows immortality on the corporate body and in the individual members you see our hope is not in our temporary earthly lives It's not what our earthly lives can offer us, but in this child who unites us with himself and gives us eternal family. You know, the the joy and heartache surrounding your biological family uh, tends to be amplified during the season, doesn't it? Uh, And perhaps you can't wait to see your parents or your siblings or your children or your grandchildren in the weeks ahead. Um, uh, Perhaps some of you are dreading it. I don't know. Um, perhaps this is the first Christmas following the loss of a loved one. And perhaps this is the 10th or 20th Christmas without a loved one, but it stings just as much as ever. Um, maybe during the season you are lonely or you were longing for love, and that feeling is made all the more hollow by the sentimentality surrounding these upcoming weeks. Whatever your emotion is attached with your family on earth, good or bad, we have a Heavenly Father in Christ. And He is tender and He is patient. And He sees you and He holds you. And He always longs for you to draw near to His heart. That's what we have. And finally, He's called the Prince of Peace. You see, separation from God, which is hopeless darkness, brings about restlessness and distress and unease. But Isaiah describes those who put their hope in anything uh, as God as greatly distressed. Not, But I'm sorry, Isaiah does describe anyone who puts their hope in anything but God as greatly distressed and hungry, in gloom, and in anguish. Uh, This is life apart from the hope of God. This is life apart from the obedience of God. However, this child... As the title, Prince of Peace. What is peace? What peace can he be talking about? Peace between God and man. As the carol goes, right? Hark the herald angels sing. Hail to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and who reconciled? Sinners reconciled. Now this is the tension that our culture cannot escape with Christmas. They may change the titles. They may change the carols. But they cannot escape this. Christmas is a time of peace. But what kind of peace? The peace the Christmas carol refers to is not a sentimental snow globe or spice cider or Buddy the Elf. It's the peace that we find when we humble ourselves at the foot of the cross. When we have come to an end of ourselves. This is the peace that we find in Jesus. You see, we will never understand, we will never understand why we need Christmas until we understand this point right here. To admit that we cannot save ourselves and that we need the peace of God takes incredible humility. Pride says we can get better by trying harder. However, if we humble ourselves and let our hope be in nothing but this child that was given to us, then we find our peace with God and, and with ourselves. You know, we can endure the most horrific circumstances, the wildest storms of life, when our heart when our hope is grounded in the light of the gospel. And when it's grounded in ourselves, how fickle are we? how does the kingdom of Jesus bring peace that knows no end? How does He do this? How does He establish the moral qualities of His kingdom which we find in verse 7 are justice and righteous? Those are moral qualities of His kingdom. This coming kingdom that Isaiah sees. How do we find this? How do we receive this? How does He do it? He does it through the cross. He establishes His kingdom and He upholds it through the cross. This child, the hope of those who worship God, the light that has dawned and broken the gloom and darkness, this child, He would become a young man. And He would be nailed to a Roman tree. And on that cross, our Prince of Peace He would make eternal peace for us. He established justice when His Father's wrath against sin was not just satisfied, it was exhausted on the cross. He gave us eternal judgment and He took it on Himself. And for those who put their hope in Jesus Christ this son, this baby boy. We are freely given His righteousness. His kingdom is full of people who have been given the title righteous. If you put your hope this morning in Jesus Christ, you are righteous. And people who are identified in His kingdom will seek and pursue righteousness. And Isaiah writes that the Lord will do all this. He will do all this because of his uncommon and extraordinary zeal for the redemption of you and of me. He is anxious for your salvation, he is anxious for your sanctification, your growth. He is anxious for bringing you from darkness. Into light. And so, what has your heart found its hope in more than Jesus? Examine your hearts this week. Will we be a church that celebrates the dawning of the light? The hope that we found in Jesus. Carmel Press, for unto us a child is given.